it's been uh, a bit of an odd month in the news when it comes to the world of sex. I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, earlier this month, there was a study that was released. It was in all the major papers and, and news uh, outlets picked it up about how there is, there is concern. It was a study done of the generation of 18 to 29-year-olds, and there was a little bit of a concern expressed in the study that that generation of people is living through what people are calling a sexual recession. It seems that the study suggests that people aren't having, in that generation, aren't having as much sex as the generations before them had had. And the, the study um, doesn't demonstrate any dramatic drop or anything like that. People have gone from like the, you know, having sex in the low 60s number of times per year to like the mid 50s. It's not a huge drop, but there were some interesting statistics. It seems that 23% uh, of people said that they hadn't had sex in the previous 12 months, that... Uh, Men who were not having sex had tripled by percentage, whereas women who weren't having sex had gone up by almost 10%, so a big disparity there. But the question of the study was, why is it that people are having less sex? Those, that young age group is having less sex. And a lot of theories were thrown out. Uh, people wondered whether uh, folks were having less sex because they were getting married later. Married people, despite the myths, have more sex than single people. And so if you get married later, that affects the numbers or um, the economic recession starting in 08, the economy, you know, when you're stressed and you're worried about your job and, and focused on your career and living in your parents' basement, all those things are bad for your sex life. Uh, they talk about technology, that uh, the availability of porn pretty well everywhere, um, as well as the drop in face-to-face -face conversations means that people are probably having less sex. There was just a lot of... A lot of discussion and even some concern about this sexual recession. And the article that I read ended with, you know, is this the way it's always going to be? Hopefully not. There is hope that things will change. That it was sort of fitting for our culture that when a community of people declines in the amount of sex that they're having, that our culture says, well, I hope this doesn't last. I hope things get better. Right? It was odd. The day before that story was released, there was a story, NPR had been doing this series on sex as well. And uh, the day before the study was released, there was a story about a couple who were Christians who had decided to wait until marriage to have sex for the first time. That even in a culture where there was a sexual recession going on, um, waiting until you're married is still worthy of national news coverage, apparently. And the, the question that it all raises for me and for us is how are we supposed to live in this kind of sexual culture? What does it mean to follow Jesus faithfully with our sex lives in the world in which we live? And so this morning we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for the most part and then a little bit in 1 Corinthians but I thought we would start just by declaring right at the outset, the bottom, bottom, bottom line of what the Bible says about what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully with our sex lives. And it says this, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Um, the word sanctified simply means to be set apart, to be different from the rest because you have been dedicated to doing 
you know, God's will or being used for God's purposes. That's what sanctified means. Set apart for the purpose of serving God. And for Paul, in the Apostle Paul who wrote this in 1 Thessalonians, in this conversation for him, what it means to be sanctified, what it means to be set apart for God's purposes is to avoid sexual immorality. The, the word there is porneia. Obviously, we get our English word porn and pornography from it. But in ancient Greece, it actually referred to the porni who were the prostitutes, which I think is actually pornography is the 21st century equivalent of the prostitutes in the ancient culture. But it was a word that came to be used to mean all forms of sexual engagement with somebody who isn't your spouse. And Paul says, if we're going to be people who are set apart from the rest of our culture, this is the boundary that ought to be drawn, that we avoid all sorts of sexual intimacy with people who aren't our spouse. Um, now for us, I mean, even, you know, with the stage design with the stained glass and, you know, behind me and so on. For us, it feels like that is an ancient and outmoded and out of date kind of viewpoint in our culture. But truth be told, uh, in the culture in which Paul was writing, they were probably even more radically sexual than we are. The very next verse is going to say, it is God's will. He's continuing that thought that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Pagans, that's not an insult. That just means people who don't consider themselves to be Christians. Um, he says, you, you have to live your life differently than the, than the passionate lust that drives uh, your culture. And it, it was certainly rampant. In fact, there's a writer in the first century, a guy who's now called Pseudo-Demosthenes. We don't know what his real name is, but he writes this about the sexual culture in which men lived in the first century. He says, we have mistresses for our enjoyment, concubines to serve our daily needs, and wives to bear us legitimate Children, uh, pseudo-Demosthenes says there are, for any married man, three outlets for sexual activity. And actually, he's being conservative because the fourth was prostitution. He said any married man in the ancient culture has these options available for sexual activity. If you just want casual sex, if you just want a, a hookup, you know, the Tinder sort of a thing, you always have the prostitutes for that. If you would like more companionship, more friendship with benefits, you know, a longer term relationship, take a mistress. That's fine. If, you know, he says you always have access to concubines, which were slave girls that were brought into the household with which the homeowner would have, the home master would have sex with them and they would kind of become like second class wives which is sort of like an open marriage or polyamory. And then he would say, and then of course you have your wife whose only sexual function in the ancient world was to bear a male heir, someone to pass the family fortune onto. But that was like, it had all of the, the features of our sexual culture, the hookup culture. It had, you know, ongoing sexual relationships with people, you know, outside of marriage or long-term dating relationships, that kind of thing. Um, polyamory, open marriages, like it had all of the features. And actually, in some ways, our culture has evolved into a better kind of sexual culture than theirs in two ways, at least. Number one, 
that was only available to a married man. If you were a woman in the ancient culture and you engaged in any of those behaviors, you would be arrested and killed. And now we live in a sexually equality egalitarian culture. And the second thing is most of these behaviors are not generally accepted as acceptable for married people in our culture. But Paul was not writing some sort of prudish, old-fashioned ethic when he writes that. He was being radical and saying this is what it looks like to step away from the way the rest of the culture thinks about sex and to live into, to be set apart, to honor God with the way that you use your body sexually. Which, uh, by the way, is... Jeff talked about this last week, doesn't mean that Paul is creating a climate where the church should create all sorts of rules about sex. Jeff talked about this last week, about how the choices in these conversations are often framed as being between legalism and rules and license and freedom. Either you have to follow the rules or you can do whatever you want. And that that choice is often presented to us when it comes to sex. That either you save yourself in absolute purity for the, the one that God has chosen for you, which is a problematic statement, or sleep with as many people as you want and as many people as you can so that you can develop sexually and know the people that you're sexually compatible with. And just basically do whatever you want or do absolutely nothing and here are the rules. And, and what Paul is calling us to is neither of those things. I mean, he's calling us away from this sort of sexual license that, mark it, that marks our culture, but he's not calling us to a life of rules and structures and institutions to enforce that abstinence mentality per se, right? Because all that stuff doesn't work. If you were around 20 or 30 years ago in the church, you phrases like true love waits and talk about purity balls and purity rings and kissing, dating, goodbye. That was all language that was being used around this subculture within the church that was trying to build this legalistic structure of getting people to commit to abstinence before marriage. And do you know what is true statistically about that entire abstinence movement is that it had an 88% failure rate. 88% of the people who said they would wait till marriage in some formal way actually didn't. Right? The church's strategy has been abstinence and sublimation. Take all that sexual energy and go, you know, kind of serve the Lord with it. That way you don't have, a, you know, sort of the metaphor was you don't have a nuclear explosion of destruction in your sexual life. You can create nuclear energy. You can do something useful and constructive. Usually what happens in that kind of environment is a nuclear meltdown. Just ask, you know, Catholic priests whether abstinence and sublimation is an effective strategy. Uh, it creates perversion and destruction. Paul is calling us, instead of freedom and license and instead of legalism and rules, Paul is calling us to a life of being filled with the Spirit. He says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul says when you live in faith, you are filled with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit who empowers you to live with loving self-control in such a way that you will not give in to all of the urges that fill our culture, but you will not need a bunch of rules to tell you what to do and what not to do. The Spirit will lead you in wisdom and give you the strength to make healthy and holy choices with your sexual life. It's about choosing a way to live our sexual identities in a way that honors Jesus. That's, that's what Paul goes on to say. 
He says in verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, It's God's will that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. He says, when you engage in sexual intimacy with someone who is not your spouse, two things happen. You wrong them and you take advantage of them. What do those things mean? Number one, he says, you wrong them. The word wrong means to to wrong someone is to step over is what it literally means. So it comes to mean to step into a place where you don't have permission to be, to trespass, to be in a place that you do not belong and have no right to. Paul says when you, literally to commit an injustice. Paul, Paul says when you engage sexually with somebody who's not your spouse, you are committing an injustice. Again, you're wronging that person. Because what sexual intimacy does is it creates unity between individuals. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Do you not know that the one who unites themselves with a prostitute is one with the prostitute in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. The, the Bible says the sexual act unites two people in the unity and oneness of a merging of heart and soul in a, in a mystical way. Um, marriage counselors will talk about this. Clinical psychologists will talk about this. That um, what sexual uh, activity, sexual intimacy does is it creates connection and attentiveness and attunement between partners. Um, the chemicals released after sex creates an emotional bonding that cannot be replicated uh, in any other way. It creates a passion for the other person. It creates an environment of safety and trust within the two live. When, that's what happens when you have given all of yourself to the other person, culminating in sexual intimacy. The problem is that when you do that outside of the context of marriage, you are asking somebody to give you all of themselves without giving all of yourself back to them, right? You're not giving them commitment and safety and trust and security and whatever. You're just asking them for their body and for that emotional sense of connection with no intention of giving them the full oneness and unity that the sex sexual intimacy is supposed to create. You're wronging them. You're taking something from them that you don't have permission to have. Whether it's a casual one night hookup thing, whether it's an ongoing dating relationship or engagement, affair outside of marriage, in every instance, you are taking something that you don't have permission to have. You are going into a place that you don't have permission to be. And that's true, by the way, of porn, where the objectification and commodification that is built into porn, which actually often also involves human trafficking, is the whole thing is rife with injustice where you're taking something that is not yours. But that's true in an equally damaging way in like things like lust and sexual harassment, sexually inappropriate comments, rape, date rape, like in all of those ways, without ongoing, enthusiastic, mutual consent, you are taking something that is not being offered to you and you are committing an injustice against somebody else. You're wronging them. But secondly, Paul says you're taking advantage of them. It sounds like the same thing, but it means something different. The phrase take advantage literally means to desire more than you are entitled to. 
It's usually used of greed associated with material possessions, just the, the constant wanting of more and more and more, and therefore the willingness to use or take advantage of somebody else in order to get it for you. That's what we're doing when we engage in sexual intimacy outside of marriage. Not only are we wronging somebody else, but we are fundamentally engaged in a self-centered, self-interested behavior that is rooted in greed. Um, uh, Barna did a study a little while ago of people's understandings of the purpose of sex. And in the top categories, three of the top categories at least, were fundamentally self-centered categories. People said... Sex is fundamentally about self-expression and self-fulfillment. In sex, I get to be me and be satisfied as me, for me. It's all about me and my fulfillment. Uh, Another one was sex is about experiencing connection in a way that's enjoyable for me. I want to feel connected to my partner in a way that I enjoy. The third one was, well, it's just a biological need. It's an appetite that needs to be filled. This argument is actually as old as the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says this, you know, they were arguing for the right to go see prostitutes. And Paul says, you say the food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. They were saying, listen, the way my body's built, I have a stomach, it growls when I'm hungry, I eat or else I become unhealthy and I starve. My body experiences sexual urges. I either gratify them or I become unhealthy and I starve. It's just another appetite. And nature tells me that that's what I'm supposed to do. And Paul says, no, that's actually not what your body is for. Those appetites are not the same. Your body is not meant for sexual immorality. Your body is meant for Jesus. To live in a way that honors him. Think this is the bottom line. 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the bottom line of what the Bible says about sexual intimacy. It says that um, outside of the confines of marriage, you are wronging another human being and fundamentally operating in a greedy, self-centered way that is all about you. And none of that looks anything like Jesus. It just looks like the basest behaviors out in culture. Paul says you're to be different than that. Now, I want to call a time out and say, as we sit here, those of us who are open to rethinking this conversation, the potential is that some of us are thinking back into our histories and our stories and are starting to feel shame and guilt about the story that you've lived. And I want none of that in this room. None of this is about shame and guilt. I don't want you looking at the floor. I don't want you covering your face. Um, Because in this community, we believe three things. Number one, we believe in solidarity. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us, not a single person in this room has lived up to God's standard in the way that we live our sexual histories. So there is not, the possibility doesn't even exist that someone could with integrity judge you for your sexual past because they themselves have a sexual past that they would be equally liable to judgment for. We, we recognize that we all stand together in this as a community, just trying to figure this out. Number two, we believe in redemption. 
that our past is not our future, that God is redeeming our stories. The Bible says there's no condemnation for people in Christ, no shame for stuff that's already been forgiven. So let's not think about yesterday and let's ask the question about what it looks like to honor God with our bodies tomorrow because God has us on a journey towards in increasing ways looking like Jesus. And number three, we believe in healing. That God is taking our stories in a direction where one of the things that we get to experience is healing from all the ways that we have been wronged and taken advantage of sexually by people who were operating out of an unjust, selfish mindset in the way that they have treated us sexually. And with the context of counseling and in the, in the context of a spiritual journey with Jesus, we're headed towards a story where there's no more tears or death or mourning or crying or pain, where we've experienced healing. So what do we do? If it's not about being shameful about the past, what do we do as we move into our tomorrows? Well, I'm going to say two things. Um, one is for us as individuals and one is for us as couples. As individuals, I think there are two things we need to do, which is number one, avoid the negative, avoid the sin, and the other is pursue the positive, right? For those of us, as we think about our own individual choices, I think the first thing we have to say out loud is we have to take responsibility for ourselves. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul said, each of you should learn to control your own body. In other words, Paul is saying with being filled by the Holy Spirit, this is on you. This isn't on anybody else. Your sexual purity is not anybody else's responsibility. It's yours. And I say that because the church has a long history, very specifically, of blaming women for men's lust. Of saying, well, it was your behavior. It was your flirtiness. It was your advances, your texts, your sex. Your, it was your wardrobe. It was your bathing suit. It was your body. It was the way that you walked that inflamed the lust in somebody else. And so you have to, in the way that you dress and walk and move, blah, 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 you, you are responsible for other people's lust. And it's all garbage. That's just not true. Paul says you learn to take control of your own body. Jesus says, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, it was the woman's fault for dressing. No, 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 no. If anyone looks at a woman lustfully, they have committed adultery in their heart. It is their problem. It is a heart level issue with them, not with anybody else. And so no more shifting the blame, right? Paul says, or Jesus says, so, you know, if you look at a woman lustfully, if it helps, gouge your eye out. Like if it helps you not, not, Live out those lustful tendencies in your heart. Take extreme measures to take responsibility for your own behavior. And associated with this is minimization. We are not minimizing behavior anymore. Oh, it was just a joke. Oh, I didn't mean anything by my inappropriate comment. It was just locker room talk. I was just goofing around. We were just teasing. Um, Boys will be boys. Absolutely not. You take responsibility for your own behavior to be the one who avoids sexual intimacy except within the boundaries that God provides. And the flip side is because, and I say this too, because the Bible, because the church has a long history of being super negative on sex, right? Like sex is bad and dirty and wrong, bad and dirty and wrong. It's bad and dirty and wrong. Here's your wedding day. Hey, it's good and beautiful. Go nuts. That messes some people right up. And they can't just flick the switch on their wedding day and go, oh, now this sex is good. Like it, it fills people with guilt and shame. Like it's terrible. And we need to grapple with the fact that the Bible and Jesus are profoundly sex positive. 
Literally, sex is the very first thing that is blessed in the Bible. God creates the world and human beings in their gender diversity and he puts them together and they're naked and unashamed and he tells them to be united to each other, you know, in marriage through sexual intimacy and he looks at the whole scheme and he says, now this is very good. Here's the the gospel for this morning. Sex, friends, is very good. Okay, let's just, there is a whole book of the Bible in the Old Testament that is one long love poem meant to celebrate romantic sexual love. It's called the Song of Songs. And honestly, there are parts of it that you would be uncomfortable to read to either your children or your mother. Ancient theologians were so uncomfortable with the erotic nature of the poetry in that book is that they, because they were profoundly sex negative because their own shame issues, that they said, no, 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 no. It's not about sexual love. It's about how much God loves you. Read it as an allegory. No, God celebrates sexual romantic love because sex is good and beautiful. And we are invited not just to avoid the bad, but we are invited wherever we are on the journey to try to explore what it looks like for us to experience the positive sides of sexual intimacy, the way God has created us in our situation in life, period. In, in terms of your uniqueness, see, I would never draft a bunch of rules about what you can do, what you can't do, because we're all different people. Each of us fully created in the image of God. Each of us with full dignity as human beings, but all very different in our experience of gender, in our experience of sex drive, in our experience of relationship, in experience of our history. And we have to, one size does not fit all. We have to now figure out for ourselves what it looks like for us to be faithful to Jesus in the way that we live out our sexuality. And to figure it out, says honorably and holy right to figure it out in relationship with God submissively to the scriptures uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit in dialogue with a diverse community of Jesus loving people through which we can discern the wisdom of how we're going to honor Jesus with the sexual part of our lives but to press into that and to pursue that together with open conversation I think that's where we're at as individuals. For married couples, the Bible is much more specific and much more clear. It says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The word to married couples is do not deprive each other. It's actually defraud each other. Do not steal from each other. Do not rob each other of what you owe. In the verses before, it talks about sex as a duty or a debt or an obligation that we owe to the other person. Do not rob the other person of the sexual satisfaction that you owe them as a part of your marriage. There's a study done over the course of 40 years, 30,000 people, and here's what the researchers determined, that the average couple, the average happy and fulfilled couple has sex 54 times a year. I take that to be once a week and on each of your birthdays, but I don't know how the math works out, but 54 times a year. 
They said that's the Goldilocks standard in the sense that couples who had sex less often than that had markedly higher levels of happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment in their relationships. But couples who had more sex than that did not necessarily experience more happiness or more fulfillment. Once a week is the gold standard. Now, far be it from me to limit you to try and prove the study wrong and experience more happiness and more fulfillment than once a week. I am for you. But the point is this, your marriage, happiness and fulfillment as individuals and in in your marriage in part depends on a commitment to being together sexually on a regular basis. And science would say at least once a week, period. That that's what you owe the other person, that sexual satisfaction. Now I get it because I'm married that things wane and go up and down and because of stress or illness or insecurity about your body or variations in emotional connectedness or technology, the stats show having devices in the bedroom reduces sexual intimacy and therefore happiness and fulfillment in relationships. Like there are lots of reasons why this sort of goes up and down and we're all unique individuals and you have your story and your partner is their story. And so results may vary, but, but the point is you owe it. Paul says there's only one reason why a couple would go for any length of time without having sex. And that's if you give it up for Lent period. And he says, and only perhaps would you choose to do that. And you could only do it if both of you agree to do that. And you would only do it for a short period of time before the negative consequences of depriving each other of sexual satisfaction begin to creep in the relationship. If you're married, sexual intimacy is the expectation and mutual submission is the standard. He says this, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. In other words, what Paul means to say is this, that you, your body is not for you and for what you want. That's the self-centered way of doing sex that we talked about as being wrong before. Your body belongs to your partner. And it exists for you to give it to them for their sexual satisfaction, which means that you're not going to your partner demanding sex from them. You are going to your partner saying, what would it look like for me to serve you in such a way that you could experience your sexual satisfaction and happiness and fulfillment in our marriage? Right? You're giving yourselves to each other and that's both in the bedroom in terms of frequency and creativity and what the goal of that sexual encounter is and who gets to decide and all of the things that happen in the bedroom and it applies to all of the things that happen outside of the bedroom because for some people statistically wives but for some people sexual satisfaction depends more on emotional connectedness Uh, spontaneous affection, unprompted I love yous, non-sexual touching, romance, cards, 
doing chores, speaking the person's love language, your responsibility is to give your partner whatever they need to experience sexual satisfaction within the context of your relationship. And by the way, even within marriage, ongoing enthusiastic mutual consent is still the absolute non-negotiable. You are not permitted in any context ever, even within marriage, to manipulate, pressure, coerce, force, or take by violence what is not being offered to you. Period. No one owes you anything. You owe your partner the gift of all of you, the gift of that obedience to God and self-sacrificing love that says, I care about you and our relationship enough to give you this gift of all of me. That's the invitation. That's what it looks like to choose to live the sexual part of our lives in a way that is faithful to Jesus. Now, I am just going to confess that I have no idea how to end a sermon on sex, except to say, be not hearers only of the word, uh, but doers also. I don't, I don't know. Except to say that Jesus loves you, every part of you, including your sexuality. And Jesus loves your marriage if you have one, or your marriage if you will have one. He loves everything about how you're going to live your uh, intimacy together with each other provided we do it in a way that is honorable and holy to Jesus. And that's what I pray for, for our community. Let's pray. Father, we, we need all of the strength and power of your Holy Spirit in us to help us see what it is you're calling us to with clarity, especially in moments when passion is high and clarity is low. We need to understand or we need to experience that loving self-control that allows us to make choices in all circumstances that honor you. Would you help us be a community that is not ashamed about sex, that is learning to talk about it openly, honestly, graphically, unashamedly, communicating partners, communicating with each other, talking about fears and fantasies and just would you allow us to be a community that is so intent on pursuing what it looks to be faithful to you in every part of our life that this is a part of who we are as well? Because we want to look like Jesus in everything we do, including the way we have sex. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.